listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. You can take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2, Titus 2, as we will be looking at that in just a moment. And ushers are coming forward with Bibles. We would love for everyone to have a Bible in their hand this morning so that you can follow along. And if you don't have a Bible at home, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that Bible as a gift um, from the Lord to you. That's His Word, and we want to get His Word out in as many ways as possible. And so please take the Word and... um, allow God's word to uh, become alive in your, in your life. And, and a great way that gets started is Sunday mornings as we're in the word together. So Titus chapter 2, and we'll be looking at that in just a moment. We live in a culture, I think we could all simply very much agree, we live in a culture that is drowning in confusion, especially when it comes to gender confusion and roles and responsibilities of what that looks like today. The lines have become blurred in, in so many ways that it is hard to see straight, it would seem. And, and what, just even answering the question, what does it mean uh, for a, a man to be a man these days? What does it mean for a woman? to be a woman. And it seems that culture wants to, in a sense, neutralize or even eliminate gender distinctions and roles that God has already hardwired into human beings and has laid out for us in his word. Even when it comes to the roles and responsibility in the home or in the church, our thinking so much, so sadly, has become influenced more by secular culture than by the sacred scriptures. And so we're living in an age that is similar to what is described in the book of Judges, that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. We are seeing that more and more today. And you see, once you abandon the authority of God's word, as soon as you start chipping away at the authority and say, did God really say that? Or was that just culture? Or he did it, he said that, but he didn't really mean that. And, and you start to chip away at the authority of God's word, anything starts to go. From abortion to late-term abortion to doctor-assisted death, now doctor-assisted suicide is becoming more prevalent that if you just want to stop living, you can. You can, can, can get a prescription, so to speak, to end your life. And we see that in, in those areas of, of life and death, but we also see it in, in a deepening sexual immorality in our world. Once the door has been opened even slightly ajar to any of these kind of things, There's no stopping what can end up happening. I was reading this past week and it was completely sickened that the next step in the so-called sexual revolution is this phrase, and you're going to see it more and more and more. It appeared for a short time on Snapchat just this past week or this past month, I believe. And this is the caption, love has no age. We already have love has no gender, love has no race, love has no religion. But pedophilia, love has no age, is the next on the sexual revolution to-do list. It's coming, folks. It's coming. And we see that, that once you throw out absolute authority, again, anything goes. Any sort of right is, becomes a wrong. Any sort of wrong can become a right, which 
just leaves us in turmoil. And so you kind of think, well, it's hopeless. There is no hope today. And we ask ourselves the question, where is real hope found? Where can we find real hope? Folks, the word of God is filled with hope for us today. And not a hope, hope I have my fingers crossed things will get better or things will change, but a confident hope that we can have in Christ. A sustainable, a confident, a true hope is available. And Paul is writing this letter here, this letter to Titus, the book of Titus that we now have in our Bibles, to a younger pastor who was sent to Crete, a Mediterranean island, and, and it was a very perverse, very wicked culture, and he was sent there to encourage and help train up and, 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 and work in a number of young church plants that had started there earlier as a result of the Apostle Paul's ministry. However, the problem was in these churches... In the, all along the island of Crete, that the Christians were acting more like Cretans than they were Christians. They were lying, they were cheating, they were sleeping around, they were doing, doing things contrary to the word of God. And their behavior was not reflecting that of a new life, a life that has been changed and transformed, but it was reflecting more of that of the culture. And so Titus is sent there to straighten it out. And, and we've already looked at how he was there to, to point good and godly elders. He was also, as we looked recently, we looked last week at confronting false teachers. But now he gives some basic instructions on how we ought to be living our life. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Young people graduating, young people in college, youngers, middle age, olders, You want to know what God's will is for your life? It's the word of God, and we're going to see it so clearly here in these 10 verses that we're going to be looking at today that you can even mark in your Bibles, this is God's will for my life. This is God's will for our lives, and and, and it's just so crystal clear that we see here in God's word. And because of the clarity that we see and what the hope that we have in the word of God, it means that there is hope for the church, there's hope for the church today in, 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 in what we oftentimes seems to look like around us, especially in North America, that the, the church of Jesus Christ is losing ground and sinking, but there can be hope for the church when we start living and thinking and practicing the biblical truths from God's word. But that also means if there's hope for the church, there's also hope for me. There's hope for me, for my life, for, for my problems, for my addictions, for my weaknesses. There is strength and there is hope and there is help through Jesus Christ. There's hope for my family. And finally, there's also hope for the world as we think and as we live biblically. And so today we're going to read here these, these 10 verses in Titus chapter 2. And so you can follow along in your Bibles as I read, starting at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to have their hus- to, to love their husbands and children." And to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their, to their own husband. That the word of God would not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity. 
and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in almost everything. Did I add a word there? Yeah. I'll read it again. I won't add the word. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing all, uh, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Well, if we were to quickly summarize this passage, and, and we would say that we see five categories, five distinctive groups that we have here, as well as two purpose statements. So, five categories, two purpose statements. The purpose statements we're going to see at the beginning and at the end, kind of like bookmarkers for this passage. The five groups that, that Paul is, is referring to here are older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then the fifth one, to bond servants or to employees. And so, point of clarification as we work through this, I'm going to be referring to youngers, I'm going to be referring to olders, and so you might say, well, where does that line get crossed where you go from younger to older? I'm walking on, line mine, on, on some, uh, some, some landmines as I, I, I talk about this, and, and as we try to determine, are you a younger or are you an older? Oh, I think you're an older. No, I think you're young. So, so, so what is the differentiation here? Uh, well, I, I'm sure that I am still very much, I'm assured through many commentaries and the study of scripture carefully. I'm still in the younger category, uh, but um, some of you are definitely are not. And, um, and, and, uh, but generally, just so you know, generally, how it's generally accepted is that when one's children have left the home and are starting to have children, this is kind of from commentaries and through biblical understanding, children have left the home and are starting to have children or are in child-rearing uh, uh, ages, then it would be kind of that distinction where you cross from younger to that transition happens. So we probably have a lot of middles too, uh, people who are in, in, in the middle area. And so we're all in, in one of those categories of some sort. And, and, and so we have these five categories. We have two purpose statements. What are the two purpose statements? It's important that we look at these bookshelving statements in verse 1 and verse 10. In verse 1 it says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, what is sound doctrine? Well, the sound doctrine is having a right understanding of the word of God. And Paul is saying, what I'm about to tell you is a result of the, or what, how I'm going to tell you to live is the result of having a sound, solid understanding of the word of God and God's instructions to us. Here is what sound doctrine will look like in the different age groups. And then in verse 10, we see the second purpose statement. The last part of verse 10, it says, so that in everything, they, being lost people, being the world, the outside world, would adorn the doctrine of God. So that through our lives and how we live this out, as we live out the truths of God's word, that others would see that lived out, not perfectly, but progressively in our lives, and they would come to adorn, they would come to seek out, they would come to want, they would be attracted, not to us, but to the doctrine of our God. And what is the doctrine of our God ultimately? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's getting our eyes focused, first of all, upward. The gospel is an upward focus, first of all, the beauty, the glory, the majesty, the holiness, the purity of our God. 
But then it's also a backward look at the price that was paid, a backwards look to the cross at the price that was paid for our sins in how God sent his, his son to redeem us. But then it's also a forward look, a forward look to what he's desiring to produce in us as well as what's waiting for us one day in heaven. And so a right view of God, right doctrine, an upward, backward, forward, focused vision kind of thing of this is the gospel will produce in us over time through the power of the Holy Spirit and our willingness to follow and to be obedient people that are attracted, once again, not to us, but to our great God. And so this morning, kind of the big idea or a big purpose statement this morning that we're going to use to guide us as we look at these categories is, is this. In response to the gospel, we are to walk this way. We walk this way because of the upward, backward, forward look and vision that is in our sights. And so first of all, in response to the gospel, here is how older men are to live. Older men are to walk this way. In verse 2, it says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, for each one of these five categories, just a little kind of statement here, I'm attempting, not perfectly, but partially, because I don't know how you could totally summarize it. I want to give a summary statement for each one of these categories that we'll see here. And so for older men, this would be the summary statement of, of the instruction that Paul is giving to Titus to instruct older men. And, and it would be this endurance and authenticity. That older men would be filled with uh, and marked by a life of endurance and authenticity. A key word that we see here is steadfastness or this word endurance. You see, oftentimes younger men live in extremes, up and down, highs and lows. And older men are to be steadfast, enduring, not driven to, to the extremes, to, to, the, to the hills and to the valleys, but instead sort of maintaining that, that, that middle ground, not getting too excited, not getting too concerned in, in various ways. And older's are to have seen enough of life and to take what they have learned and what they have seen and experienced and the things that have happened. They've seen trends, they've seen fashions, they've seen all kinds of different thoughts and that come and go in various ways, things that at times maybe they thought would hurt them or destroy them or end their lives, that, they, that in their younger days got all worked up and got all confused and got all upset about, got them depressed or stressed out, but over time saw how God delivered and how God saw them through that. And so there's this experience that they have to impart. I think of me starting out in ministry in Saskatoon with an, an older, older man. He was already in his 60s. And I'm just a young buck in my early 20s starting out in ministry. And, and, and uh, here he was, this steady, older pastor who was just faithful, humble, dependent on God. And there were so many times I'd go into his office and I'd be ripped up and fired up about this or that. And say, we've got to do something. You've got to preach on this. You've got to say something. You've got to, you know, and all of this. And there was just this 
this calm kind of demeanor when this weird sort of stuff started happening. I remember in Toronto at some vineyard, at some airport church and, and all these things and, 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 and people were going over there and then coming back to our city and all of this and, and I was getting all amped up and excited and like, oh, you know, and, and he just had this calm, steady demeanor and, and, and just reminded me of some truths in God's word and, and it was just this faithful um, captain of the ship for our church in so many ways and for my life. You see, there's a problem, there's a temptation, though, for older men as they get to the last third of their lives to start to coast. I've done my part. I've finished. I've retired. And you start, and oftentimes the focus starts to be about themselves. And sadly, you know what the byproduct of this kind of living is? It's oftentimes cynicism and grumpiness. Either or and oftentimes both. And when an older Man starts to just turn on himself and just focus on himself, easily to become cynical and judgmental in so many different ways, as well as just grumpy. And no one loves to be around that sort of a person. Now, there's nothing wrong with hobbies and retirement and interests and travels and, and sitting around with the old boys and reminiscing about the good old days at A&W or wherever you may go for coffee on, you know, uh, in the mornings. You see so much of that these days, and that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with reminiscing, nothing wrong with that. But their pursuits may, should not just be consumed about their personal lives and just their small little circle of family, but about God's kingdom and, and so much bigger and broader. That's the mission that God has for olders. You see, it's about taking these days and making them into some new good old days. Taking the youngers with you in that journey, encouraging, building into their lives with maturity, with humility, with patience. Authenticity teach the youngers. And older men, the youngers don't need to hear about just your victories and the things that went well and the great accomplishments. In fact, they probably don't need to hear so much about that. They need to hear about your failures, about the mess-ups, the shortcomings, the screw-ups, the trials. They need to see how James chapter 1 can be lived out. These verses that you'll see on the screen that, that, that go like this. Count it all joy. This is an older that could be saying it to a younger. Count it all joy, you youngers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then you share with them, listen, this is how trials and persecutions and difficulties went that I experienced. How I, I, I responded well and how I didn't respond well. And you see that... These things have equipped and have shaped your life. And again, they're going to learn more from your failures and mess-ups than probably from your victories. I was meeting with a ministry friend this past week, and as we were talking about life and ministry, he's been in ministry about the same amount of years as I, as, as I have been. And, and, and as the years go on, the longer that a person goes in ministry, those that you started in ministry with are often dwindling like crazy. But this guy has stayed faithful and has a humble heart and, and, and desires to lead the ministry that God has called him to lead very well. And you'll be blessed by him in a number of weeks as he comes to preach here. But as I was sharing with him over the years that, that if I was to impart any sort of anything to, to younger pastors or to younger men, it wouldn't be 
of the successes and, and, and the good times and the awesomeness of things that have happened that have been a part of the ministries that God has allowed me to be a part of over the years. No, I told him that, that the best ground and the, the best learning and the best experiences have come from two primary events that almost sought to devastate me, one physically and one uh, career-wise. That what was meant, it would seem, attacks from the enemy or, or, or just, you know, God just dealing with me to destroy me. God, through healing and through forgiveness and through his work and his word and having a band of brothers around my life to strengthen, encourage, and hold up my arms when I could not stand. That's where my boast would be. I would not boast in the accomplishments of my life because when I look back at him, oftentimes I, I don't think I've accomplished much. But it's only by the grace of God that, that we are that, who we are. And, and it's taking those valleys and those hardships and those difficulties and, and allow God's word to produce a steadfastness and a holding on. That's what we want to boast about. It's not boasting in the stuff we've done. It's in who God is. I think of the godly men, the olders who have influenced my life from my own father, an example of humility and steadfastness, who even now in his early 80s continues to reach out in the city that he lives in to he and my mother together to new Canadians, to refugees who are coming and just the heart that they have to get the gospel into their lives, gospel steadfastness. A father-in-law and a mother-in-law who have gone through much in their years and are faithful behind the scenes servants. Churches have been so blessed by their faithful ministry, oftentimes behind the scene. My father-in-law oftentimes will talk, he says, oh, I don't have much to say, I'm not a speaker. He can say a lot behind, you know, after different things. He's very opinionated, love him, love my father-in-law, I want to be like him in so many ways. Um, and, and faithful examples but also the countless other men in my life over the years who've had huge influence. Men that I've sought out, men who have sought me out to learn from sharing life together. I believe I'm the man I am today in my life because of the older men. Again, not through all their glories and victories, but usually learning the most through their failures and discouragements, but how God has held them steadfast. Those are the examples, olders, that youngers need to see. Let's move on to older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. The summary statement for older women, reverent and sweet. You might say, <coughs> I'm just the messenger. This is in the Word of God, so, you know, if it's, if it's a, sweet, a hard pill to swallow, you take that up with the Lord, but let's dig into this. What does it mean here? The word reverent means priest-like in behavior, meaning that older women are to continue to give themselves in the service of God. They are to be priest-like in their activity and their behavior, giving themselves in God's service. And a big part of that is through building of the youngers. You see, culture and your flesh will say, you're done. Olders, you've, you've finished, you crossed the race, the line has been cut, you've made it, you, the, the ribbon, you, you've run past the ribbon, the kids are gone, your husband's out fishing, it's you time. 
And again, nothing wrong with vacation, relaxation, leisure, but it's not to be your number one priority. Kingdom work is to be your priority, making your life count in the lives of others. Yes, loving, caring for your family, for your daughters especially, your daughters-in-law, for your grandchildren, yes, but it's a larger circle than that. Expand it out further to the young ladies, to the youngers in the church, knowing that many of them have not come from biblical examples, and it's time for you to step in and to be those biblical, loving examples to them. Notice it says, not slanders. What do they mean by that? Does that mean women can have sharp tongues? Sure, so can men. But here he's, he, he's mentioning this, that there's a tendency in this age, and I think that it goes something like this. I've paid my dues. I've done my part. And then they look at the youngers with cynicism and say, <laughs> when my kid was that age, they weren't in diapers still. Or, you know, uh, when my kids were that age, they behaved much better than, than, than that. And it's so easy for a negative and a critical spirit to develop. You have to be so careful. This is something we don't want, want to have to be a part of our lives, whether older man, younger man, older woman, younger woman. And it starts at, this, at, at the early ages to determine not to be like that. Notice it says, not addicted to much wine. As the kids leave, there can be changes in life, perhaps even of the death of a spouse, and addictions of many sorts, and, and here Paul refers to alcohol as being one of those, can become companions, things that consume your time or even ruin your life, such as alcohol or other things that just, just, just take away the days and the hours. It's about being under control of the Holy Spirit. It's where younger women can look at you and say, hey, I want to be like that. It's growing in godliness and sweetness from the heart. That this sweetness of the heart is spilling out of our lives. I read this this week in, in a sermon commentary on this about a seminary prof. He, he wrote this in regards to this passage. And he says, when you are young, you have two things you lose over age. Natural, physical beauty and filters. So you lose your natural, physical beauty and your filters over age. And those things are gone, and when those things are gone, if you have an ugly spirit, there is nothing that masks it anymore. In truth, it all, it's always there, but it's just been masked by filters or by your good looks. You can't really take credit when you're beautiful at 20, because everyone is, but you have no one but yourself to blame when you are ugly at 80. I thought, wow, that's... That's powerful. What a reminder. You see, sweetness, all of a sudden, going from a, a sour, critical person to a sweet, life-giving, blessing person, there's not a switch at like age, you know, 52 or 65 or whatever that all of a sudden clicks in and you go from sour to sweet. No, it's cultivated over time. It's cultivated in humility and dependency upon God. It comes daily as you worship the Lord and understand the gospel, understand how, how, how whether it's the youngers or whether it's the olders or men or women, however it is, that we're all going to fall short. We're all going to mess up and we understand that about ourselves. And so as God applies grace into our lives, we apply grace into the lives of others. There's this 
sweet lady in Saskatoon. I think we have a picture of her. We took this, I think, two summers ago when we were home. She's now in her mid-90s. And this lady, I mean, sometimes we've always wanted to, like, pinch her to make sure that, like, she, she's real because she's more angelic than she is, like, I mean, she is the sweetest, sweetest lady who loves and cares for people with a genuine heart that is just, just such a blessing and encouragement. She'll phone us. We've, we've left for ages at times on our answering machine message. Remember those like, machines that you had on your kitchen counter? Now uh, we still have ours, but it doesn't work very well. But we would keep, she would phone us on our anniversaries. She would phone us oftentimes at Christmas, and we would just, at times, like it's Ann calling, and we were really rude, and we wouldn't answer. And why, why did we not answer? We wanted to have her recording on our answering machine because it was such a beautiful, sweet little message that she would give. And saying, I'm praying for you, we love you, miss you, all of these kind words. And, and, and so, and, well, that sweetness didn't start when she retired. It started earlier, even though she walked through trials and, uh, and, and loneliness in her life and difficulties. And even more recently, she was sad. A dear sister of hers had just passed away the last time that we talked to her. And yet she was continuing to trust this sweetness was still oozing out of her. That's what God, and, and I'm thankful for the sweet ladies, many sweet older ladies that have blessed our lives through the years and in this church and are blessing the lives of many others. Verse three, it says, they are to teach and train the younger women. Teach is, a, is, is kind of an informal mentoring that takes place. It's having coffees, it's, it, it's, it's a mentoring, it's a serving together, it's life rubbing up against each other and modeling this in, 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 one's, in the lives of youngers in that way. Train is a more formal process. This is speaking God's word and God's truth directly to youngers. And, and this happens through you know, different Bible studies and teaching and opportunity to, to, to more formally train younger ladies. And so teach and train. How was it raising your kids through the various stages? Younger moms would love to learn some of your wisdom, what worked and what didn't work. How did you balance kids and, and marriage and work and your time with the Lord in the midst of chaos in the home? How do you teach and train the youngers to learn God's priorities? It's all of these kind of things. Again, probably the best teaching and training happens, again, not through all your successes and that, you know, at you know, nine months, your baby was completely out of diapers. No, because that probably didn't happen. You've kind of lost it with age a little bit there. That, that didn't happen. It's more of the mistakes and the failures and the things if you could do it over, you can see those do-overs possibly happen in the lives of youngers. Then it goes on, the third category is younger women in verse, last part of verse three to verse five. It says, they are to teach what is good and train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands and that the word of God, that the word of God may not be reviled. A summary statement for this, embrace sacrifice joyfully. Those are tough words. Those are tough words because we live in a culture and our natural flesh just rubs up against a lot of what I just read there. It kicks against it big time. And there's so many pressures on youngers today, on young women today, young moms, young single gals to look a certain way, have certain accomplishments, 
and then celebrate it on social media. And it's so easy to become distracted because, uh, or, or dissatisfied when your life doesn't measure up. And you look at the, you watch those YouTube channels of those moms who just seem to be knocking it out of the park or those Instagram profiles where it's like, how can they be so godly in, a, in such a crazy sort of, you know, life that they have in all of this? And it's easy to look at those lives and become dissatisfied when your life doesn't match up. You know, older women are to teach and train the youngers to love their husbands and their children, to be kind and submissive to their own husbands, it says. This means loving your husbands well. Loving your children well, not just when they're lovable, but when they're unlovable. This means loving your husband when he's being a selfish jerk sitting on the couch while you're slaving away. You see, love, gospel love, in response to the gospel, this is the way we are to walk. This is response to the gospel. This isn't our flesh telling us. This is a response to the gospel. You see, love is not situational, it is to be consistent, it's from the heart. It's this gospel-informed love, it's, it's mirroring, being a mirror of, of God's love for us. How we've all fallen short, how we've all disobeyed, how we've all been ugly and, and selfish and sitting on the couch, kind of jerks before God. And yet God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we are still living in our selfishness and our own ways and we continue to do that, he continues to bestow his love upon us and so we are to mirror the gospel in that. Remember that Jesus died on the cross for us, giving us the power, the ability for wives to love their husbands and their children even when they're unlovable or hard to love. But let's remember, men, marriage is a dance where both partners reenact the gospel the husband loves his wife like Christ loved the church, which means he puts her wants and needs before his own, even to the point of death. Men, that's the goal that God's word tells us that we are to live and to, to serve and to work towards in the home. And how oftentimes I fall short of that. At least two of my family members here today didn't yell amen at that point. Spiritual headship isn't about dominating my wife. In fact, if I love my wife in the way that Christ loved the church. It means that I will give up preferences for her. It means I'm going to be wrong in arguments. It, it means that there's going to be times that, that I defer to her on things and, and, and allow her to make those choices or their decisions when I know her heart or her mind is set on certain things. It's because it's putting her needs ahead of my own. And man, that's hard, isn't it? Because we're selfish, opinionated stubborn, prideful, how we need the cross daily. And the woman's part of the wife, her response is yielding. It's yielding to her husband. It's my wife yielding to me in the decision-making responsibility. I like the way Tim Keller's wife put it. He said, he, she said this, he gets a vote and I get a vote and then he gets the deciding vote. And, and at times, there will be decision-making times like that. I think of some of the major moves that we've made as a family. Major choices to uproot our, at one point, uh, just the two of us, but then nine years ago to uproot our family. How I sensed and felt God's leading and, and, and believe that's what God's will and God's plan was for us. And, and on both of those occasions, and especially nine years ago, Charlotte didn't have that same sense from the Lord, she's just like, I don't know what he wants for us. 
And I'll never forget the morning that I leaned over to her and she said, so what are we doing? And I said, we're moving. And she said, okay. And just like that, it was a huge uprooting for her. And I thank you, Charlotte, for, for being an example in that way. I've seen that in your life. And oftentimes I'm not the husband that God calls me to be. I don't think any of us are knocking out, uh, knocking out of the park. Not, none of us are batting a thousand yet. But we desire to grow in this area. Look what it also goes on to say here. It says to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Oh, more, more landmines to step on. This doesn't mean that a young woman or a mom cannot work outside the home, I believe, because there are a number of places in Scripture where we see women working outside of the home. But folks, ladies, what this means is that it's about still making your home a priority. And couples will come to different convictions on what that's going to look like. And we pray for them that they would make wise and godly decisions on what that looks like. It's not for us to criticize, but for us at times to speak truth and speak what we believe God may be telling us in in certain regards, um, in convictions that we have biblically. But this is a decision that couples make together. But the priority is to be the home for a young mom, caring for the needs of her home. Yet culture defines Everything's so differently. But a woman, we we see throughout scripture, we we see a number of examples of women who have worked and have, in a sense, careers. But our culture tells us that a woman has to have a career, has to have a job. Otherwise, you feel like a nobody. That is a huge, massive lie from the culture and from the enemy they want you to swallow. Priority is your home, it's your family, it's your children. And as Christ followers, we are people that he has redeemed, he has purified. Our identity is ultimately to be found in him, not in what the world says. We are treasured possessions of the most high God. And I trust that these, these truths liberate us to embrace the hard and the mundane, but the vital tasks that God gives us to do. Paul is saying here that your homes, your kids, caring, watching over the home, whether it's the laundry, the dishes, the meals, these are priorities. That career is not the top priority, it's a family, not hobbies, not even other girlfriends or social outings. You could be a stay-at-home mom and still not be a mother who's at home working hard. You're busy in so many other areas and, and home is to be priority. I believe it, I believe this completely that Apart from Jesus, a mother is the most influential person in the life of a child. They grow up, and we're experiencing this, faster than you could ever dream. One window, one opportunity to raise them and to affect that next generation. The nicer house, the car, the toys, the trips, they can wait. There's nothing like time and loving and prioritizing our children, and that's to husbands and to wives. Make our families a priority, not what the world tells us ought to be the priority in our lives. Let's move on to younger men. Verses six to eight, we see this. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, period. Isn't that funny? I mean, we have like at least seven things that younger women are to do. Young men, one thing. Be self-controlled. Urge them to be self-controlled. But Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city 
broken into, left without walls. That if a man does not have self-control, all mayhem happens. A young man has self-control and develops self-control. He is going to be a man who will stand firmly in this world, in his life, in his marriage, in his relationship with God. You see, every young man is filled with a lack of self-control. Ego, passion, laziness, a lust for sex, wealth. It's the Achilles heel of pretty much every young man. And there's a struggle to stay pure and stay focused and disciplined, to be a man of God's word. But you bring all of those in under the control of the Holy Spirit, along with a good mentor in the word of God and good friends, going to see some fine young men grow up and develop. Now, Titus would have been in the younger category, and so these next number of verses apply to Titus that Paul tells him here as Paul shifts to give Titus some instructions, but these instructions are to Titus, but to all young men. Look at verse 7. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The summary statement for young men would be this, self-controlled and integrity. Be a young man of self-control and integrity. There's a soundness and a consistency about your life, about your speech, about your work, about your, even your thought life. And even when you're opposed, your opponents are put to shame because they have nothing bad to say about you. And then Paul moves on here to to slaves. In verse 9, he says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, uh, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, I explained the term bond slave or bond servant a number of weeks ago when we started this message. But this is basically an employee-boss relationship and what that's to look like. And they, in those days, on the island of Crete, just as in the, in, in the beautiful Okanagan Valley or wherever you may be from, you're going to have great bosses and great employers, and you're going to have awful bosses and awful employers. And you're going to have some awesome co-workers and some terrible co-workers. The summary statement for this, for slaves, for servants, for, for, for employees is this. Putting God on display. In our lives, in our speech, in our actions, in what we do, we put God on display. If we want to turn this world around, we're told here, we see in God's word that it starts as Christians God's people are living, responding, working in such a way that people scratch their heads and say, what is it about them? I don't understand it. But they end up seeing that and understanding as you share with them that it's the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. Our work ought to reflect the life and the character of Christ. I love this, this quote uh, came across this past week. The kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom made visible by the obedience of God's people. When we are obedient to what we just read here in the book of Titus, we see that God's kingdom becomes very visible. When we submit and follow good bosses, 
That's easy. But bad bosses, terrible ones, even when they're jerks and show favoritism to others. And Paul is saying, hey, tell the servants, tell the slaves, tell the employees, no shortcuts, no shortcuts, no stealing of time or possessions, no pilfering. We do as they tell us. Unless, of course, they tell you to something that goes against the word of God. If they tell you something to do something illegal, immoral, that goes against God's word, then you can disobey those bosses. Don't talk back. Don't talk behind their back. It means we work hard. We work hard with a full shovel, giving, us, giving it our all, with integrity, excellence, not working just the bare minimum just to get the job done. The words I hate the most in the English language is, that's good enough. That's good enough. Well, yeah, that's good enough. No, give it your best. Serve, work in a way that the business flourishes, that your boss looks great. You say, yeah, yeah, but that's, that's difficult. That's hard to do. But look at what Colossians 3.23 says. Verses on the screen. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Even when you're serving that jerk, that difficult, that hard-nosed guy, gal, we are serving the Lord Christ as we are doing that. Our true and our real boss is Jesus Christ, and he will reward your work, your faithfulness, and what about for that impossible, obtuse boss or coworker? Well, let's go on to the next verse. And it says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. God, he will one day have the last say, whether it is here, in the now, or yet to come. And so I wonder today, are these your life goals? As we look at these different statements, do these define your life? Imparting these into others or learning these attributes from another. Nine years ago, this very weekend, I preached my last sermon in a church in Alberta where we had pastored for almost 14 years. That was that hard decision that it took for us to make to move here to the Okanagan. And after that service, Charlotte and I jumped in the car to come to Kelowna to house hunt. Within, I think, the next uh, 20 hours or so, I ended up in the hospital uh, with food poisoning. And uh, yeah, it was a great way passing out in a hotel bathroom. And uh, of course, people said, oh, of course, you've come to the Okanagan. What did you expect? Not food poisoning, but passing out in a bathroom. Well, I didn't expect either of those. And so, um, and one of the things, though, in moving here, and as things did not go initially as we had thought, as, as we had planned out in our lives, one of the things that intrigued me about moving to the Okanagan was to be part of a multi-generational church, to be a part of a Titus II church. And folks, in a way that I can't understand, but only God can explain a God thing, is he has blessed us here at Hope Bible Church for the last four and a half years to see this happen, to see a multi-generational church. We have someone in their 90s now, and we have children, babies, 11, month, 11 weeks old, I believe, 19 weeks old. Love it. And because God has blessed us in this way, though, doesn't mean that automatically this Titus 2 passage is just going to happen. It's got to happen as we're intentional. Younger seeking out the olders, older seeking out the youngers. Don't wait, initiate. Don't wait for someone to come to you. You initiate, you take Take 
the initiative of inviting someone out for a coffee, a meal, or into your life in some way or another. Coffee, lunch, after service, talk with, get to know one another, come early for the service, visit with others, stay afterwards, this, afterwards and, and get to know others, move outside your comfort zone and talk with others. It's the little things that, need a, that make a difference and, and start it today, start it today. But this all involves for everyone humility, it's going to involve sacrifice and where do we get that ultimate example? We get it through Jesus. Jesus set that example for us. And this life, it's only possible. A heart change, what we're talking about, these, these things we're talking about and, and, and living this out, and a heart that is changing can only happen when we entrust our lives to Christ. When we take the sin and we take the mess-ups and the failures, understand we've all fallen short of God's standard and how much we need his forgiveness in our lives initially and then daily. Understanding that he came to life, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death on the cross for us. And so, in a few moments, we're going to be partaking the Lord's Supper. And as we worship the Lord, as we do this together, we're going to do a little differently today. You see, the Lord's Supper isn't just an acknowledgement that Christ died on the cross and we partake to remember of his sacrifice and what he's done for us. It's also a declaration that says, I desire, I declare that I want to follow and I want to live for Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we partake, it's not only a remembrance, but it's also a declaration. My sins have been and continue to need to be forgiven. And so spend time confessing your sin before the Lord and asking for his forgiveness. Make things right with God, with others. But it's also a declaration of a life that we desire to live. And as you have heard God's word proclaimed to you, and I'm sure that for each one of us, there are things that are like, okay, I need to grow, I need to be stretched, I need to take initiative, I need to smarten up in some areas, I need to initiate in these areas. We're going to have some olders and some youngers serving the Lord's Supper today. And what we're going to ask, and I'm going to ask you folks to come into place as well as the band to come up at this time as we get ready to worship. We're going to have a younger and an older lady on this side, a younger and an older men on this side. And they're going to stand in front of the communion table and you can come and get a piece of bread from them and dip it in the cup and partake of the Lord's Supper in that way. However, we're changing it just even a little bit more, is that we would love all the ladies partaking of the Lord's Supper today to come over and to receive from the ladies. All the men to come over to this side and to receive from the men. That means as you're worshiping, just kind of scrunch up with your calves on the back of your seats so that there's room for people to walk perhaps in front of you and to make your way to do that. So that we can together not just remember, but we can even start living out what we've heard today, that we would practice this, and that as you come and you thank the Lord for his love, his sacrifice, his substitutionary death on the cross, that is also a reminder, an acknowledgement, this is the way I desire to live, to be a younger, to be an older, to, to see God do a work in us and through us for his glory, wherever it is that you live, in the context that he has placed us in. Let's pray together. And so, God, we come to you now as we worship, as we partake, as we do what you've commanded us to do, to remember your death, your burial, your resurrection, your victory in the partaking of the Lord's Supper in this way. And God, even now, as 
We may be sitting here and we may be looking at our lives and we just think of how we have failed, how we have regrets because of the mistakes, perhaps the wasted opportunities or the wasted years or decades of our lives. God, we are so thankful that we have a God who forgives us, who cleanses us, that your fatherly love towards us does not depend on our success and our victories. We have a God who loves us even though we fail and have failed. And so God, I pray that today in humility and with sacrifice, we would give ourselves in committing ourselves to you in surrender into the areas that you are speaking by your spirit to us about. And so may we worship and celebrate and commit to you in this way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.